Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 12th, 2019, and this is episode 2,508 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, and we are back to our regularly scheduled programming and have been for about a week now, so that means it is time for a listener call show. This is where I play your calls, and these are calls that you make to my dial-in number, which is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, when you call that number, you're not going to be like, hi, caller, this is Jack. You're not going to get a screen or anything like that. Uh, this is a podcast. It's pre-recorded. So you'll get a voice message. When you do that, just leave me your message, and uh, maybe you'll hear yourself on the air. To get on the air, here's what you do. Bottom line up front, I cannot tell you how important this is. Ask your question or make your point as soon as possible. I mean, one sentence, my question is, or my point is, or I'm commenting on an article that said blah. Then do all the details you want, but you only get about two minutes to do it in. But I promise you, if you do bottom line up front, your odds of getting on the air are really, really good. One a little message for a caller called in and said, Jack, I sent in a question. What did, what did this guy say now? Um, I answered this one. I just slipped my mind. Oh, on when is it okay to call the police as a libertarian? I answered that question. He called in again and said, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the answer. Go look back. I believe I did it on a on a uh, right in uh, Monday show, but I did answer that one. And my short answer to that, if you're hearing it today and uh, you didn't can't find it in the past or whatever, is whenever the odds are that someone is going to die, go down because you've done it. If I see a guy drunk off his ass, weaving back and forth through traffic uh, and, and seriously endangering lives, I'm probably going to notify law enforcement. I don't want to, um, but it's everything in life is a risk-reward ratio. You know, will, will I draw my gun? When do I draw my gun? When my odds of surviving or defending innocent life is higher by doing so than not doing so. I don't ever want to do it. And that's, I guess, the short answer to that one. That's how you have to look at police. Police are a gun. When they come, there's guns with them. And when you pull a gun out of its holster in a, a conflictive situation, you may do it when it's not necessary to discharge it. Sometimes... Sometimes the appearance of a gun is a diffusion of a situation, but as soon as it comes out, the odds that it's going to go off go up. And that's that's what you're dealing with. I wish it wasn't the case. But, you know, you call the police on someone, they or their dog could get shot. I, and the people that call that cop bashing, I'm sorry. Look at the numbers. Look at the reality. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I say it's a chance. So as a libertarian, I'm not calling the police because your music's too loud. I'm not going to live with the fact that maybe somebody was drunk and somebody threw a fit and somebody got shot over loud music or somebody's dog got shot or someone's kids are traumatized over loud music. Uh, but if somebody's engaged in activity that is seriously threatening lives, then, yeah, I'm probably going to call law enforcement. Anyway, did a bonus for that. So what are we going to talk about today? What calls do I have today? Here's what we got. Um, call on intermittent fasting, how it works, and how, what does it have to do with keto uh, dieting. Uh, question on buying second-tier cryptocurrencies like ARK, which is a crypto that I am a particular fan of. Thoughts on silver and gold ratios, not as an investment indicator, like what is silver and gold trading against each other, but as a, a holder of silver and gold, what ratio should you shoot for, if any? I actually think that's pretty personal. I'll give you my thoughts on it. 
Um, the safety of using rainwater for drinking water, it actually is quite safe and probably the number one way in the world people get safe drinking water, but there are some things to think about. We'll talk about that. Somebody has a big old tub of crappy-tasting vegan protein powder and wants to know what to do with it. Uh, I'm not sure, but I have one little thing that you might find interesting that goes along with protein powder. Uh, a listener who's making the most of his dash calls, and this is a, a, a mid-tier, a mid-level millennial, I guess, or mid, mid-timeline millennial who has uh, made some changes in his life for the better. We'll hear from him. And uh, dealing with a ton of pigeon poop. person has a big old roosting tree in their backyard, and it just accumulates a bunch of poop, and they want to compost it. I'll tell you how to do that really, really easily and uh, get really great material out of the problem that becomes the solution. All that and more in just a minute. Uh, before we do that, I've got a couple things for you today. One, I want to start out with a uh, quote of the week. And this one is by Albert Hubbard Reed, who said one time, Do your work with your whole heart, and you will succeed. There is so little competition. Um, that is one of the biggest truisms in the world, and I think it, it does a couple things. One, it points out the opportunity that exists in the world today. People that truly do their work with their whole heart, with 100% effort all the time, are exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare. The thing is, most people use the fact that others don't as an excuse not to do so themselves. That's okay, too, because the ones that do, it is very easy to shine when you are a light in the darkness. If you think about it, if I take something like a single... LED Christmas light, okay, and I it's on a sol one of the solar powered ones that runs from a little AA battery, all right, and that AA battery is almost dead, so that little light that has so little light at all is shining at only half of what it's capable of. It's a fairly dim light, and I hold that light up in a well lit room. You might not even be able to tell that the light is on. But if we shut all the windows, all the drapes, all the shades, everybody turns their phone off, puts them in their pocket, so there is no other light in that room. So that it is total darkness. And I turn that one light on, it will shine like a star in the sky. Because light stands out among the darkness. And there are many forms of light. There is actual light. There is spiritual light, etc. But there is simply the light of exceptionalism. The person who does the most and works the hardest will stand out. It will not always be rewarded, but then at least you'll know. And then what you know is to go somewhere where it shall be rewarded or to use the opportunity where you are to learn as much as possible and then move on to something else and reward yourself. Do your work with your whole heart and you will succeed. There is so little competition. Next, I want to real quick mention September 11th. I mentioned it briefly yesterday with Vim when I mentioned that we're in Palodrome Week, because uh, like today is 91219, and backwards that's 91219. Uh, so all week we have that, so I'm distracted by patterns. But I said when I mentioned that to Vin that I wasn't going to talk about 9-11 yesterday because everybody was, and I try to talk about the things that no one else is talking about. And so when everybody's talking about something, you tend not to hear it here. Or you hear a very alternate version of it. And I'm sure alternate versions of 9-11 went around as much yesterday as did uh, the standard versions. Before I say what I have to say, I'm going to tell you that I lie somewhere in the middle. Uh, I do not believe 
an old real estate investor had the authority to give the order to demolition World Trade 7. Okay, that's just stupid. Um, understanding what it takes to do controlled demolition, uh, I do not believe that the buildings fell due to controlled demolition. If you do, fine. That's what you believe. I also don't believe that our government was caught completely unaware and had nothing to do with anything. Um, I believe that maybe they did not realize how bad things were going to be. They thought something was going to happen. I believe they were on it and let it go. And let it get out of control. And I believe the people responsible for that have never been held accountable. And I actually think that the people who are the extreme conspiracy theorists that think Larry Silverstein was able to give the order to pull it and think they know what the hell that even means because it's code in demo world, just stop. Yeah, because they went through all this conspiracy and then he went out on national TV and told everybody. Sure. Um, I think that group is used as a, as, as useful fools, honestly, to bury any question. So if you have any questions at all, oh, you're one of those crazy conspiracy theorists, you know, that doesn't even think a plane hit or whatever. And, you know, here's the thing. I don't care what camp you're in. You believe the official narrative 100%. You're more like me, like there's some bullshit by our government here, but what basically happened is what basically happened. Or you're like, no, man, there was no plane. It was a hologram or whatever. Anything from all of those, what I'm going to say I think is incredibly important. This thing could be exactly what they told you it was. And it is still incredibly dangerous what it's been used to do to the American people. And I realized this yesterday morning when I was sitting and watching a news report and they went back to it. And I was thinking about where I was. And it's one of those moments in history where we all remember where we were. I was on a plane landing in Pittsburgh literally at the moment the first tower was being hit. I got off the plane. It was one of those perfect airport experiences that never happened. I walked up to the baggage thing, and my bag just popped out in front of me like it was like they were waiting for me. Grabbed my bag, walked out the door, jumped in a van. I was a regional sales vice president for a company called Microtest. We had just been bought by Fluke, and they merged us together, but they hadn't quite done that yet. My sales rep was waiting for me. I got in the van. He turned the radio on. And we were listening to Howard Stern. That was his favorite radio show. And they said a plane hit World Trade Center. And we actually made jokes about it. We thought it was some drunken assessment. We figured, you know, maybe maybe somebody got hurt. But what was actually going on, we had no idea. And I think most people were confused in the same thing. And that led a lot to the conspiracy bullshit, by the way. Well, then a second plane hit. And then the Pentagon. I tried to call my wife. And phones were tied up. And I thought, my wife has my flight number. She knows where I am. She can look up that my plane landed. I am not going to be the guy that gets in the way of somebody trying to get in touch with their loved ones who needs to. So I quit trying to call. And then a plane that went down in Shanksville, just outside of Pittsburgh. And I thought, oh my God. They're going to tell the kids in school what's happening. And all my son is going to hear is airplane Pittsburgh, which is where I was and where I'd flown to. And he's going to freak out. So I called and called until I got through my wife and said, you got to get in touch with the school and you got to let them know to let him know that I'm okay. And a lot of other things happened. I listened to my wife cry. I got stuck there for three days. I couldn't get home. Obviously, no business got done. We canceled everything. Finally got a car, drove home one way. And I watched in those three days, unable to be with my family and help them. America in just complete turmoil. And yesterday when I watched the scenes of what was happening. And I watched that building, the first one fall. I remembered that when I was in Pittsburgh, 
this this sales rep and I, Matt, we walked into a, basically like a restaurant and bar to see what the hell was going on to get beyond the radio. And as we walked in, the first building collapsed. And I remembered that, and I remembered how I felt. And as I sat there sitting next to my wife, I felt a tear form in my left eye. And I thought, how dangerous is this? Because how much liberty has been taken from the American people? How many laws and regulations have been passed that have nothing to do with the protection of, of, of American citizens? How many rights have we given up? And it's that emotion that they play on. And let me tell you, it doesn't have to be a false flag. A real crisis can be leveraged the exact same way. In fact, for the people in power, it's even better when the crisis is real. It's more powerful. So when you hear the words, never forget, I agree. And never forget how much more the people of this country loved liberty on September 10th. People say they miss September 12th because everybody got together. Everybody getting together with unquestioning anger and a willingness to do everything is called a mob. I miss September the 10th when people still seemed like they were willing to take a stand for liberty and they weren't so easily frightened. My thoughts. With that, let's talk about something totally different as I take your first call today. This is a call on intermittent fasting, something that I've become a pretty big fan of in the last month. Here we go. Good morning, Jack. I sure enjoyed your show about low-carbohydrate eating. Uh, appreciate the work you put into those shows. Uh, talk came to mind listening to that. We hear a lot about fasting nowadays. I uh, wonder what your thoughts are. I often eat on a 186 Eating window, 18 hours fasting, 6 hours of eating. Tell us what you think. Thank you. Well, I've actually taken to doing this, and I have a few thoughts on it. Let's talk about the difference between fasting and intermittent fasting. I don't know there's a hard, fast rule, but I think the way most people uh, describe it is exactly what the caller said. If you go on an extended period, intraday, um, then that's an intermittent fast. If you go a day or more, that is a fast. So if I decide I'm not going to eat Monday and Tuesday and then break my fast on Wednesday, I've gone on a 48-hour fast. If I finish my dinner around 6 o'clock tonight <clears throat> and I don't eat till 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, I've been on a 19-hour intermittent fast. I have not had a full circadian rhythm or a full day go on in between. Um, I think this is a great way to eat, especially during an intervention phase of any type of diet, even if you're going to go more of a conventional diet with caloric restriction. I think you'll find it a lot harder to do instead of a high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carbohydrate method of eating. I think you'll find it relatively easy to do. In fact, this is my big problem right now. What I do is I either get the show done, the recording part anyway, by 2, or at 2 o'clock I say, enough. Time to eat, and I pause the recording or I render out where I'm at so I don't lose work or whatever. I go make my lunch, and I eat lunch around 2 o'clock. And I call it lunch fast because it is lunch and breakfast together. Like I'll do meat and a big egg and a salad. A lot of times I do an open, you know, like a sunny side up egg with kind of a, a medium cooked yolk where it runs but it doesn't run like water on top of the salad. It's so good. 
and I eat that, and then I try to eat by 6 o'clock. And if I do that, I stay in a 19, uh, a 19.5 intermittent fast. And there's a couple things that come from that. Number one, when you go past into 18 hours, your body gets to a point where it actually begins to break down and rebuild itself. And people are like, oh my God, you're going you're gonna to digest your retinas or some stupid shit. Like your body's that stupid that you know, it's, it's, you've not eaten for, for 18 hours, so all of a sudden it's going to digest your retinas. No, it's going to digest things like the fat in your liver and your pancreas that you need to get rid of. And it's actually going to help rebuild the body. This is a natural way that mankind lives. So there's that. Additionally, since you're eating your food within that window, at four, six, five, whatever it is, hour window, or even you know an eight-hour window, um, once you have used the calories from your meal and you have more hours to go and you have to breathe, pump blood, sit up, fart, take a dump, walk to the, the bathroom, like the most basic bodily functions, even without working out, the working out while fasting can be really powerful. Um, your body has no choice except to go get fat reserves and use them. It has to. There isn't any other option. Your body, you know, if look at it this way. Let's say that your, your basal metabolic rate, to make it really simple, is 2,400 calories a day. That means your body needs 100 calories a day. So if you eat 1,000 calories on an empty stomach, you've consumed enough calories to go 10 hours. In hour 11, you don't got no more. And that's assuming 100% efficiency of those calories. So if a lot of those calories are protein, there's going to be some portion of those calories that were not even used as caloric input because they were structural proteins. They were used to maintain and build body structure. So at some point, you're like, your body's like, shit, I gotta go to the, I gotta go to the well. And that's why it's so good at kicking on the fat burning of the fat that's on and in your body. Alright? This is the real magic. Like, I was not really sold on this until I did it because if you're trying to stay 20 carbs a day or lower, and in my case, it's about 1900 calories a day is the caloric deficit I'm running for now until I get to the weight I want to be at. It's easy. I mean, that's, that's two meals of 900 calories, you know, or two meals of 800 calories and a snack in between them, or, you know, you know, a little bit of cream in your coffee or whatever, and you, you're good. And staying under 10, 10 carbohydrates a meal is pretty easy. I mean, I eat big old salads, green peppers and cucumbers and a little bit of tomato and pecans and stuff. Like, so it's, to me, the intermittent fasting actually makes sticking with your macros, your macros are your fat, carbohydrate, and, and uh, uh, protein numbers easier because you only have two meals to design. And my biggest problem is eating on time in the evening. I'm not hungry. Guys, you got to give this a shot. I, I'm still doing these videos. I did episode 11 today of uh, Jack's Low Carb Journey, and it's called But My, my Potatoes and My Bread. Um, and I'm going to tell you, that episode is not safe for work. There's a cuss word or two in all of them, but this one today, I kind of lose my shit because somebody's like, how would I ever survive without bread and, and potatoes? And it's like, uh, grow up. And I read a heartbreaking story today, but I invite you to... Uh, look up Jack's Low Carb Journey on YouTube. There is a playlist. I'll put a link in the show notes today. Um, I am covering 
so much that I'm not going to bring on air because I'm not going to turn this into the keto hour. But when you guys ask, I'll, I'll give you an answer. And, and intermittent fasting is fantastic. And it is, to me, one of the best things we can do to heal our body. And I may, like, I don't know, maybe next week I'll pick a day and I'll do a 24-hour cycle with a single meal. You know, and the, the thing there is, I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat less calories because I cannot eat 1,900 calories the way I'm eating in one meal. Um, one last thing I want to say before I wrap up: the whole calories doesn't count thing. I know I said it in the past is bullshit. It's not true. And I really invite you if you go on a keto, low carb, whatever lifestyle, get a good app. I use a keto diet app, which has got some bugs in it, but they, it works fine for the day you're in. What happens is sometimes yesterday's meal becomes the day before's meal. I don't understand how that happens. Like it changes what you ate. And, and I talked to them, and they got a new. Supposedly, they have a bug fix waiting approval from Apple for them to push it out into the world, and it'll make this go away. Um, so hopefully, they will. But What I realized when I started tracking my calories and my macros, that even when I thought I was doing things the right way, I wasn't. Like The mindlessness with which we eat is incredible. And so it, it'll, I'm going to tell you if, you, if you have it in you to hear the F word a few times without getting offended and turning into a snowflake and melting and running off to pet cup, puppies and, and get a crayon and a tissue, if you, can, if you can manage through it, you really need to listen to episode 11 today. I'll put a link in the notes for it as well. Um, I read an email from a guy that ended up on dialysis. He's on dialysis four hours a day, four days a week now, because he, he blew up his kidneys from type 2 diabetes. He lost an eye. But after that happened, he decided to actually get serious about this, and now he's barely using insulin. And it probably won't be long before he's not even diabetic anymore, but he'll still be waiting for a kidney transplant. It's the reality here, guys. I, I don't want to preach at you. I really don't, but... And what I say in the video today is if you're healthy and happy and your numbers are good and your weight is good and you've got energy and when you go to the doctor, you know, all your metabolic numbers and everything are good, fine. That's fine. But if they're not, just because you're skinny doesn't mean you're, doesn't mean you're healthy. The diet that they have told us is killing us. I am probably going to do an episode maybe next week on Ansel Keys, the seven country study and the lie that is the American diet. The reason I haven't, there's so many good documentaries on it. Um, there is one from the fifth estate on sugar, just sugar alone. Um, there is a, a great one called Carb Loaded. Uh, and then there is a really great one that's done by Montel Williams and some other folks uh, on keto. And I'll link to all three of those today. And that's the reason I haven't done an episode yet. There's so much out there. Like I said, I don't want this to be the keto hour, but uh, I also want you to survive. It is the survival podcast. Number one killer in America is obesity. You could say it's heart disease, you can put diabetes is here, and cancer is there. When you look at the causes of all of those deaths, and the, the number one contributing factor is obesity. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Uh, my name is Arnett Whalen, and uh, I had a question about ARC cryptocurrency. Uh, you talked about it in a podcast here recently, and, and the fact that it is, is doing a lot different things than other ones are doing. I'm trying to figure out how to purchase it. I'm not very tech-savvy. I've gotten online and saw a few different things. People were talking about doing it, but I'm not 100% sure that that's how to do it, so I'm just trying to figure out if you've got any advice on how to invest in it. Uh, like, literally, how do I how do I go out and spend my money and get ARC? Because uh, I'm very interested into it. it. Looking What little bit I've looked into it from what you were saying, it does look very interesting. Uh, and may yield something in the future, maybe not, but... Uh, 
yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you. Uh, love the, love the podcast uh, and everything's been great. Have a good one. So, one of the big problems that people have is a desire for complete and total anonymity. So people want to be able to go to an exchange or whatever and buy and trade crypto without an ID. And that's just not a thing. I mean, there's a few ways to do it. If you use a VPN and uh, convince the exchange that you're not in the United States and there might be an exchange or two that you can still do that with, but you'll find it very difficult under those scenarios to buy with cash, credit card, etc., cetera, uh, bank check, whatever. Um, Now, you can trade crypto for other crypto uh, on some exchanges doing that. So just accept the fact that if you don't have any crypto and you want crypto, you're probably going to have to come up with an ID check. And uh, you know, a company that's great to buy Bitcoin from is Coinbase. And you can get 10 bucks worth of free Bitcoin by buying your first $100 in Bitcoin from Coinbase by using the banner on my website. You'll see a banner there for Coinbase. Just click it, set up your account. Fund your account, and when you fund it with a hundred bucks in Bitcoin, if you buy other cryptos other than Bitcoin, there, um, it won't get you your ten bucks. You have to fund it with ten dollars worth of, or a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, and you'll get ten bucks worth of Bitcoin. And so, I'll be honest. So, the reason I put the banner, so will I, but I don't get the ten bucks unless you fund it with a hundred bucks. It's your money; it doesn't come from you. It comes from Coinbase. That's how they get people started, um, and you can buy Bitcoin there. Once you have Bitcoin, you can send it to any exchange you have an account with. There's a lot of the stuff you can buy on Coinbase. Coinbase has been, you know, playing nice with government though and reporting everything, um, you know, that they've been forced to report anyway. Uh, there are some other exchanges. I like Bitrix. Kraken is a good exchange. I don't know if Kraken has Arc on it, which is this specific question, but you're going to need to find an exchange that allows the purchase of what we would call your second tier cryptocurrencies, things that are not Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Ethereum and Litecoin, right? Um, And, and again, Coinbase allows some of that, but not Arc's not there, and a lot of other things people may want to buy is not there. So then you'll you'll send that over to that exchange, and what you want to do is make sure if you have multiple cryptos, let's say you have Ethereum and you have Bitcoin and you have Dash in let's say a Liberty Wallet, but now you want to buy another cryptocurrency that's not currently available through Changely or whatever through um, or whatever it is, uh, Shapeshift through the Liberty Wallet. Um, you need to go to an exchange. Well, you'll send the, the crypto there and then buy it. But what you want to do is make sure that there is the ability to do a direct exchange if that's necessary. So you don't have to do two transactions. And what I mean by that is you may find if you send Ethereum to Bitrix that some cryptos can be bought with Ethereum because it's that big of a mainstream crypto. But you may find that ARC, for instance, only trades on the Bitcoin ARC board. So you have to use Bitcoin to buy ARC. Okay? So you want to make sure if you have the option that you send what you need to buy the thing you want with. And then you simply put in your order, and it's, you know, I can't give a technical training uh, seminar in a podcast. I can't do it. But you're going to determine whether you're going to put in a limit order where you say, I don't want to pay any more than this. Or you're going to determine if you're going to put a market order, which means I'm going to pay whatever it's going for right now. If you do a market order with most cryptos, buying with Bitcoin, your order will process in, in seconds to minutes. And then you'll have ARC on the exchange. Then if you want to hold ARC, for instance, uh, the best thing to do is hold it in the ARC wallet, the native ARC wallet, which you can download from the ARC website. And they'll give you an address when you set your wallet up. 
and you use that address and send your money from the exchange to the wallet. I want to say this. If you hold your crypto on exchanges long term, I think you're wrong. I think there's a security risk there. I want to hold my crypto in my wallet where I hold the private keys. Um, there is a case to be made sometimes when there's going to be a fork. That means that they're going to split a specific crypto and the exchange that you use is supporting that fork, which just simply means if you put your crypto in there the day before the fork, the day after the fork, you'll have an equal amount of the forked crypto. I can see doing that to make your life easier instead of having to do it manually and do it yourself. I get that. Uh, Coinbase has done that with some splits, not all. And uh, so I get that. But get it out of an exchange, Coinbase included, into your own wallet. And with ARC, once you have it in your wallet, then you can vote a delegate, which does cost a certain amount of ARC to do, but I think it's like a half an ARC, which is 10 cents right now. And once you vote that delegate, you can participate in proof of stake. And that simply means you get a return of investment on however much ARC you're holding in your wallet. The delegate doesn't get it. They can't get your crypto. They can't see anything about you other than your address, so they can send you your block rewards. And depending on how much you have, you know, you'll get a certain amount of ARC every day. I get more than one. I'll, I don't want to give out too much personal information on a daily basis from proof of stake. And that's it. Now, I will say, I don't know if this is the same guy, but a guy wrote me about this same topic over the last couple of weeks. And his first problem was he was in New York. And New York won't allow him to do any crypto buying except through Coinbase. I think it's the only person one that's approved. So he wanted to know, like, how do I buy it? And I gave him some ideas, but basically I'm like, you know, you're going to have to figure this out. I, I, I can't do this. And he eventually bought some ARC, and then he wrote me back and wanted to know exactly how to do proof of stake. And there's a point where I'm just going to tell you flat out with email responses that are one-on-one -on -one responses, I stop. I can't be people's personal coach for free for thousands and thousands of people. I can't. I don't mean it to be, I don't mean it in any way nasty or anything. It's just like, you know, something like that. If you really want to know how to do it, I promise you that with Google And an eighth grade or better reading ability, you can figure it out. You might have some problems. You might get angry. You might be pissed off. You might need to drink a beer and come back and try again. But you can get it done. So I'm not the technical coach for cryptocurrency. I'm not going to be that guy on any of these things. But that's the basics of it. And this is why I recommend that you know, get if you have extra money, money that you will not be upset if you lose it. Buy a few hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and put it in a Liberty Wallet. You know, learn about Bitcoin uh, coin text and use that too. And learn how to use it. Buy stuff. You know, you'll burn a little bit in transaction fees, especially buying your first crypto. But start using it. Then you learn how to use it. Then it's really easy to start figuring out how to accept it. And I think the number one way to get crypto isn't to buy it. It's to accept it for something that you do or some service you provide. I mean, I don't reload a lot of ammunition anymore, and I know this is technically illegal, but I put it under the, the world of a, uh, a gray market. Like, it's illegal, but it's not. It's illegal if I open up Jack's Reloading Emporium and start selling ammo online and reloading it without an FFL. If I have five buddies who like me to do their shot shell reloading for them, and I say, well, if you pay for the components uh, plus my time and I'm just doing it for you, eh, I would be like, yeah, well, how do I pay you? Bitcoin Cash. And I would I would spend the time teaching them how to get Bitcoin Cash so they could pay me in it because now I have a reason. And I think that's why you become educated so you can educate others because like Vin and I talked about yesterday, cryptocurrency is not about buying Lambos and going to the moon. 
Cryptocurrency is about the freaking liberation of humanity from the state's system of running and controlling and monopolizing all finance. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Question for you. When buying precious metals, namely gold and silver, do you have a specific allocation between the two that you prefer? Also, when buying something like silver, do you prefer blanks, rounds, junk silver, or any typical allocation between them? Or are you simply targeting what's your lowest price over spot? Thanks for all you do. Bye. So to tell you the truth, I, I don't put a tremendous amount of thought into it, but I am a little bit silver bias. And I also have a reason that I'm heavy on silver, and that is that for 10 years I have been willing to take silver as payment for MSB. And selling a $50 a year product, or I do... Um, if you pay on, if you pay by paper check or silver or gold or any other way that you mail in your payment, I do a special deal on the form for that where people can pay for three years um, for 125 bucks, which saves them 25 dollars. So you know I'm selling anything, and I'll run a sale sometimes, sell for 25 bucks, 35 bucks, what have you. So I'm selling a product for anywhere between let's say 25 dollars to 125 dollars. How much gold are you gonna send me at you know? Thousand plus dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, whatever an ounce, none, right? So silver works for small transactions really well, which is one of the reasons I prefer it. Not so much because I want to go out and barter with it when the shit hits the fan, but if I need to sell some precious metal, I'm dipping into my true long-term emergency wealth storage. So I want to sell as little as I possibly need to, and I want to avoid Ira Ramon. Sancia. Who's Ira Ramon Sancia? As I told Vin yesterday, Ira is the biggest gangster in the world, the IRS. Ira Ramon Sancia. You got it? IRS, right? So if you go and you sell 400 bucks worth of silver at a local pawn shop, there's no paperwork. There's nothing filed with the government. You go the next day to a different one and sell another 400 bucks. So silver enables those small transactions that are not traceable. And if I wanted some work done and I'm willing to part with some of my silver for it, and a guy says, well, I just did a 1000 bucks worth of work to your car, um, but I need cash for the parts that I put into it. So I need at least 400 in cash, 600 for the work I did. Okay, here's 400 cash and 600 in silver, right? So I can use silver that way a lot easier than gold. Um I've never been big on trading the gold-silver ratio. I do think that when you look at the historic ratio, silver presents a buying opportunity right now. But that has been the case off and on nonstop for 15 years now. So it hasn't corrected yet. It's gotten closer and further away, but it's not a big buying indicator for me anymore. So the advantage of gold is less space and less resources needed to store it. So the big advantage of gold is if you have to haul ass, then you know you can take $10,000 worth of gold and put it in your front pocket. I might be a little bit smarter about it than that, but you ain't doing that with silver. So I think it makes sense to have some portion in gold for its portability because both are absolutely fungible and, and, and tradable immediately. You can go to like any major city in America, and if you walk in with 10 silver eagles to a pawn shop, a coin shop, whatever, and put them up on the counter, 
they're going to make sure they're not counterfeit, that they're not some Chinese knockoff made of zinc or something. Um, but as long as they're real, there's a price that they already know they're going to pay you. And they're just going to give you the money. As far as what I prefer is a form. I, ex I have tons of different stuff because I accept everything. My, my number one preference for silver is U.S. American Silver Eagles or Canadian Silver Bullion, depending on, because they make a lot of different stuff, right? Um, it changes different years and stuff. But those two, because they're government-backed, government-recognized, um, and especially with Silver Eagles, there's even some... There's a certain amount of silver eagles you can sell every year with no reporting requirements to the government. And they're immediately recognized and accepted everywhere you go. But, you know, if you walk into a coin shop with silver rounds, again, they're going to make sure it's legitimate silver, but they have a price they're going to pay you. But they're going to pay you a little more for the silver eagle. So you're going to pay a little more, but you're going to get a little more. Um, junk silver, I take it. I don't mind having it around. I think it's kind of cool. I like going through some of the stuff with my grandson and saying, look, this quarter was made 50 years before Grandpa was even born. And explaining how there used to be real value in our money and stuff. But I would not put the majority in junk silver. If I had to give you a ratio for silver, you know, I'd say 50% or more in government bullion, maybe 40% in various rounds and bars and stuff like that, and maybe 10% in junk silver. That, that's that's kind of the ratio I would put out. As far as gold to silver, I think it has a lot to do. Like, if you only have a thousand bucks in precious metal, silver. Five thousand, probably still mostly silver. Maybe a couple tenth ounces of, of gold or something, you know. Um, but if you get it to a point where you have, you know, if you have, let's say, five percent of your net wealth, and your net wealth is a million dollars, right? Uh, that's a lot of silver. So. At that point, you know, some significant portion needs to be in gold for its portability alone. Because, you know, Fernando Aguirre, Fairfowl, who had a really great survival blog, I don't know if he still posts to it. I think he actually is going to be on the show. Now that I say that, I think I connected with him on Facebook and he put a form in and I sent it to Dorothy. So I think Fairfowl is going to be on. He once famously said, $5,000 a Glock and a passport solves a lot of problems. Well, if you add $5,000 worth of gold to that equation, It solves an awful lot of problems. So that's just the way to think about it. Uh, now we have one on rainwater catchment for potable drinking water. Hi, Jack. Uh, my question is, is rainwater safe to collect and use in the house? Uh, so the backstory is we bought our house about a year ago. Uh, and when we bought it, we believed there was two wells, but it turns out the second well was an underground cistern. There are two concrete tanks that are about 2,000 gallons each. Uh, I'm in the process of digging them out to clean the insides and coat with a uh, drinking water safe product. And my question is, is it safe to have that as drinking water? Uh, the house does not have systems that are separated, so the cistern runs to all the sinks. Uh, we are using uh, reverse osmosis for drinking water. Um, well, is it safe to drink? Uh, what should I do to make it safe to drink if it's not? Do I need to install a pre-filter? Are there any other things that I should look for or that you would recommend that I do? Thanks, Jack. Appreciate all you do. So 
you know, outside of America and the developed world where everybody is connected to a pipe that runs to a government facility where they dump, you know, chemicals in the water to make sure you don't die when you drink it, probably the number one way that people, you know, provide for themselves in a decentralized system for drinking water in the world is rainwater catchment. Because it's immune to so many of the contaminants that groundwater can have with well water. So, mostly, it would be true to say that rainwater is clean and safe to drink. There are pollutants, and some of those pollutants accumulate in the air, and some of those pollutants accumulate with dust, and some of those pollutants then end up in rainwater that falls from the sky. But rainwater is basically distilled water, in essence. If you think about, like, what is distilled water? We boil water, the steam that comes off of it is condensed and returns to water state, and then it's safe to drink. Well, how do you think you get rain? Do you think God cries? Do you think it's God's tears? Right? It's not God's tears. It's water evaporates, which is basically to become a gas, which is steam, and goes up into the sky, except it's water vapor instead of steam, because it doesn't have to be 212 degrees for this to happen, and it condenses and then falls from the sky as rain. So in general, rainwater caught into a clean vessel is as safe to drink as just about any water you're going to find. It will be devoid of minerals. That's a separate issue. Okay, so you may want to think about mineral supplementation beyond what you would normally do if all your water is rainwater that you're consuming. Now, there's some different moving parts here. So the rain falls on the roof. What is the roof made of? If it's a composite shingle roof, you have tar and things like that and some things that can contaminate your water. If it's something like a metal roof, which most people that build a house and they plan on doing rain catchment, since you have cisterns already there, maybe they did, you, you have a metal roof, and you know a metal roof is not going to have anything that casts off. And various different roofs will maybe have different things. Now, what pooped on your roof? What fell on your roof? What blew on your roof? So that goes on top of the roof composition. Uh, birds crap on roofs. Squirrels go up on roofs and take a dump. Right, These things happen. Dust blows up on roofs. So what you really should have in any roof rainwater catchment system, both for purity of the water itself, but also just like not to clog filters and stuff like that with detris, is what's called a first flush system. And what that is is basically when, when the rain starts, it has this huge flush of water that comes off, and there'll be some sort of a catchment. A lot of times this is done with a pipe. real simple way to do it is you get a big um, piece of like six-inch pipe, and you put a, a, a ball in it, like that would make for a float valve for the back of a toilet. I've seen them done with that. It's that simple. And it sits in the bottom of the, the um, pipe. So the water starts filling that pipe up. And there's quite a few gallons of water it takes to fill that pipe up all the way almost to the top of the roof level where it goes into a pipe that then goes down to your cistern or your, your uh, poly tanks or whatever you're catching water in, right? So what happens is, that ball floats up, and when it gets to the very top, as high as you can allow it to get, it trips some sort of a switch or plugs some sort of a hole or whatever, and now the water diverts and begins to get caught. So the first flush goes away. And there's a bunch of different ways to do this. That's just one way. So I recommend a first flush system. Okay. Now, once you have that, 
you should have fairly clean water, again, depending on your roof composition. And even composite shingles, it's not as big a deal as the super crazy people worry about because you can worry too much about toxins because breathe in, breathe out, you just consumed and expelled 50,000 toxins. You have a body that's designed to deal with toxins. So we can try to not be dumb, but we can also take care of ourselves. Then we go into a cistern. Well, how clean is that cistern? What has been in that cistern? Uh, has that cistern been infected with anything? You may look at actually doing basically um, filling. If you have some source of water uh, other than rain catchment that you can pump into there, you might flush it through or something, uh, maybe even treat it. Uh, but what I would do is fix everything up, allow it to fill up, and have the water tested. And Because I don't know. You don't know. Have the water tested in the cistern. What are you starting with? And then have the water tested as it comes out of your reverse osmosis. Now, your reverse osmosis system, you're good. You're good. You're not going to get sick drinking your water that way. If you use a fl first flush system, have relatively clean cisterns, and run all the water that you drink or cook with, or consume in any way through reverse osmosis, you're going to be good. There, the, the, most of the world would die if that wasn't the case. Most of the world simply catches the water and drinks it, okay? Because they have to. That doesn't mean you should too, but that means with what you're doing, you're good. If you didn't have reverse osmosis, I would say get a Berkey or some other filter and run all your water through a filter, but have it tested pre-filter and post-filter. Now, a lot of people would say, well, Jack, if the water tests perfectly safe pre-filter, Why worry about filtration? Because did something get in your cistern? Did something get on your roof that didn't first flush out? Did something contaminate your water? How often are you going to have it tested? Once a year? This is why I say to use water filters anyway. I'm on a well. My water, every time we have it tested, I have it tested about every 18 months. I have a little reminder comes up, send a, send a test in. Always test good. But I would say I'm not 100%. Sometimes I cook with water, but then it's going to get boiled anyway. But you can still have heavy metals or whatever. But I, I, you know, I test my water every 18 months, and yet 99% of the time, water that I consume in any way, shape, or form goes through a Berkey. It's just real simple. And again, reverse osmosis, that's a fun, any kind of system you want to use, they all work. They all work. Even though the Berkey guy sponsors the show, I'm not going to say reverse osmosis is crap. It's a good system. It works. I like Berkey because it looks good and it can't break. That's, <laughs> that's the simplicity there. Uh, but have a tested pre and post filter, and then you know what you're dealing with. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is David from Texas. I have some vegan protein powder, and I was curious what uses it has besides uh, going down the garbage because it tastes terrible. Uh, I was curious if maybe it had some uses in vermiculture specifically. Thanks so much, and keep it up. So I, I don't have a great answer. I have a thought, but I, I don't think it's what the gentleman used. But I did want to point this out since I've been talking a lot about keto recently. And one of the things that people seem to really miss on a keto diet is crispy, crunchy fried foods like fried chicken. Now, to me, you get some really good duck fat, you get some chicken wings, and you season them up, and you fry them in the duck fat in their own skin, and... Yeah, good, right? But I get it. Because, uh, yeah, man, like, of all the things to think about that, you know, are tempting at all to me, fried chicken. And I'll tell you, my weakness is actually the next day. Fried chicken's fine, but cold fried chicken out of the refrigerator for breakfast. Oh, yeah. 
Well, this guy did a KFC clone, and then he went keto and started to, and this guy's like, he's a cook, and uh, he does a lot of YouTube stuff, and he does a lot of fast food clones. And he started thinking, how can I do KFC as a clone? And he used protein powder instead of flour. And he's come up with his 11 herbs and spices to, to mimic KFC, which apparently is a pretty big hit with people. And instead of using flour, he just used protein powder. And he's like, it's protein on protein. It'll crisp up. It'll taste fine. And I have not tried it yet, um, but it looks fantastic. And I I would estimate he did some in deep fry and some in air fry. I think the air fryer may have come out better. Now, I think he used a whey protein, which would not be vegan. So it may not even be good for this, but I don't know what else to do with it other than if you tried using it like as a replacement for flour in fried foods and that didn't work, then I would consider just dumping it in the freaking compost pile. It's protein. And it's a plant-based protein, and it'll contribute to... I, I don't have another use. If anybody else has a use for what to do with vegan protein powder that you've already tasted and decided, nope, not going to eat any more of that, like George Bush Sr., not going to eat any more broccoli, wouldn't be prudent. If you're, if you're there and you've got something else you can do with it, let me know. Um, but I think this is a case that veganism is probably a bad idea. I'm just saying. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Todd in North Carolina. I'm halfway through episode 2500, and fellow listeners inspired me to call in. I followed the millennial formula of high school, college, career. Two years into my career, I realized I wasn't making the most of my dash. However, I had a seven-year contract I had to serve. I found you and your community in the last 18 months of that contract. It was a push I needed to pursue my own path, and make the most of my dash. I'm 18 months into my own journey and loving it. I'm not exactly where I want to be yet, but I'm getting there every day. Looking forward to 2,500 more. I, I found it interesting. There was no specifics there. Like, I followed the typical path, and then I changed because I had a contract or something else with nothing about what that... Because it's a typical path. You go to school, you get a job, right? But, like, did you change industries, whatever? But here's the thing. I don't think it matters, does it? I think what, what this guy is saying when he says he wasn't making the most of his dash is whatever he was doing wasn't really what he wanted to be doing, and he changed it to do what he wanted to be doing. And I think there's so many people, like, that seems so ridiculously simple as advice. And the danger of simple advice is people are like, ah, yeah, everybody says that, but, but it's up to you to do it. I mean, if you really aren't happy with your life, like I always said, the person responsible for it, the most person, the person most responsible for it, you go have a discussion with them, probably in your bathroom, because there'll be a mirror in there. But wherever you can find a mirror, look in there. That's the person that's most responsible. And I understand things like, you know, I have a family to take care of. I can't move, whatever. And I'll give you that. But even in the circumstances you're in, how far apart you are from the way you really want to be living is more on you than anything else. You can make what you have work better for yourself if you'll put the effort into it. It's amazing what people will put effort into and then make excuses about not being able to put effort into something else. You know, with diet, I've seen a lot lately with, man, you put a lot of effort into planning your meals. Well, I don't want to be fat anymore. Right? If you want to be fat, then you can keep eating Domino's pizza. That's fine. But don't whine about it taking too long. It doesn't take too long. Because I guarantee you, nine, you know, 99 out of 100 people saying that 
spend plenty of time on their ass in front of the TV or playing video games or whatever. People put effort into what they find to be most important for the time. And that would be great if it was really what was most important to them. We have a way in modern society of tricking ourselves into what's important to make things that aren't important seem important because it makes for convenient excuse making. And it's your life to live any way that you want, including wasting parts of it. That's your choice. I won't tell you it's not your choice because I'd be lying to you. It is your choice. And you have every right to make it. But shouldn't you at least be conscious of it? So I think it's a good idea, at least once a quarter, to pull yourself back into a self-evaluation of your life. Where am I in my life? Where do I wish I was? Where am I trying to get to? And am I getting closer to that? Just those four questions. You know why most people won't do it? They're afraid of the answers. Don't be afraid of the answers because the thing about your dash, the thing about your dash is we think of it as being such a big dash. Such a big dash. And if you think about the average lifespan being over 70 years, it's a huge dash. A line that runs for 70 years, it's really, really big. It's a huge dash. But have you ever noticed everybody's dash looks the same when they bury them? Itty bitty. Represents one second. It's the last second you're alive. It's really easy to draw somebody's last second in a dash. It represents the 70 years, but it is the size of the last second. Well, every day, no matter how long you live, no matter how well you take care of yourself, no matter how much you dedicate yourself to longevity... The dash shortens, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Don't wake up one day and think, man, I let too much of it go. And if you've had that realization, do something with what you have. This will fit really well with our song of the day, but we're not quite there yet. Hi, Jack. This is Ellie from Jerusalem. How do I manage pigeon droppings in my yard? We have a large pine tree over a graveled area and many, like a big layer of droppings collect there. I was, I wanted to use this resource and I was worried about a few things. First thing is pathogens. How could I compost it properly? Um, do worms eat it or could I add it to a continuous compost system like you describe you fill up a bin wait for a year and then use it i'd love to hear your thoughts thank you well i am so glad that you called in and said how do i turn this problem into a solution rather than how do i make this problem go away because actually making the problem go away would be pretty easy you could put some noisemakers up in that tree and uh If you have this much pigeon poop under a single tree, you have a roosting tree. That means you have a tree that pigeons have decided they like sleeping in. And uh, you said Jerusalem, and I'm imagining you mean Jerusalem, Israel. And uh, there's a lot of pigeons in the uh, desert climate of the Middle East. It's where pigeons really come from. And they have been traditionally throughout the Middle East, into Asia, and up into Europe, Uh, used as a basic, a really great form of self-foraging livestock for both meat and eggs for a long time. Um, and because of that, they've spread way beyond 
even within what you'd think of as their native range and and established you know beachheads of population. So now we have them everywhere from where they traditionally lived as wild critters to places like parks in in New York City. And I think what most people don't realize is pigeon is kind of a generic name. Um, really, when you, the, the pigeon is a dove, it's just a species of dove, uh, commonly known as a rock dove. And so they're a great animal, but you don't want to use them for that. You just want to use their droppings, which is an incredible resource. So what I would do is find some form of carbon, whether it be leaves or straw or even hay, and make a big pile of that stuff around your tree. And nitrogen and carbon make compost. And if you have enough carbon, then those pigeons can drop onto it and it will bind up. And since you're in a very dry climate... It's going to stay mostly dry, and it'll be like a composting toilet for them. And what you can do is put scatter around maybe a couple inches deep around your tree and let them poop. And eventually you'll be like, it's still kind of a problem again. Put down another layer. Basically, you're going to do deep mulching like we do in a chicken coop. And you decide how much straw before you're like, okay, time for this to be compost. Then you have dry manure embedded in this straw, and then you move it to a location. You can either compost that with worms, or you can compost that by building up a big heavy pile and wetting it down and turning it. And either way, it's incredibly simple. Like the tree is doing most of the work. The tree has said, come pigeons and rest in my boughs. So that's what you have, is you have a tree that your native rock doves have decided they like sleeping in. And as long as they continue to use it, you have an endless supply of incredible fertility. And it's the beauty of it is because they're a foraging bird, they have an incredibly varied diet, and they're getting all of this nutrient from all over the place, but yet it's still local. And as you compost it, you're going to have what's known as IMO, or indigenous microorganisms within your compost. It's like, And if you could find a local source of some sort of straw or carbon, man, you've really kicked that into high gear. So that, that, that's how simple I would make this. You need a rake and a pitchfork and carbon and a place for it to go when you're done, maybe a wheelbarrow. And it won't stink. You know, you're not going to ever have enough rain continuously in your climate that this is going to be a problem. Now, I will say that you might have to put more thought into it. If you're listening to this and, like, you're in New Jersey and you have, like, a tree that freaking turkeys roosting, because I have a... I have an old guy I used to work with, an old guy, an old friend I used to work with. I guess he is an old guy now. He's older than me. Um, in his backyard, he has just wild turkeys just roosting these two pine trees in behind his house. And uh, so, like, if he was doing it, you know, like your pine trees, so you could just use the pine straw that's already there, but you might have, even with that, a little bit more maintenance requirement to, to kind of pull it out and, and fully compost it more frequently. There you go. It's not hard. Great question, and glad that you understand that you have a resource. Not a problem. Anybody does have this problem, wants them to go away. You know, you put a bunch of bells or whistles or something or horns up in the trees, and you'll notice that they all come at a certain time to roost. Um, and then all you do is wait, set up a timer if you can do it with electricity or if it's man, some sort of manual thing. If you just scare the shit out of them right at roosting time, Every day for a couple weeks, they'll stop coming. But I wish I had the problem because between that and a pellet gun, I get compost and food there, man. 
Anyway, we have wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did and you want to support the show, remember two ways. One is you can become a member of the MSB. We're going to talk a little bit in-depth about MSB tomorrow, a little sales pitch for you, blend it into tomorrow's show. So we'll just say consider it today. And uh, the other way is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's a little page on my website with a URL that takes you straight to that subpage, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You like this show, you're going to buy something online, just go there first. First of all, if it's, if it's something I've reviewed, you can find the best product for your money there. My commitment is all my reviews at T-SPAS are 100% items I paid, paid for with my own money, and I've bought them, and I will buy them again, or I will not recommend them. Today is um, a tea, which is really just a dried flour. It's made by a company called Frontier. It's whole chamomile flour tea. I love chamomile tea, and I love chamomile as a whole for all the things that it does. It is great uh, as an addition to certain herbal salves for the smell alone and for some things that it does for skin, um, but it makes just a great tea straight. But what I'm looking for in a tea when it says chamomile tea is chamomile flowers. In other words, when I open it and look in, I want to see petals, and I want to see a center of a flower. I want to see the little, you know, little hump of a flower. And that's what you get here, whole flowers. If you say it's chamomile tea and I look in there and it looks like chopped dust, I will never, I, first of all, I'll be angry that you sold it to me and then I'll never buy from you ever again. Um, there is a, a group of companies that I buy from sight unseen now if I need something new that they don't have, that you know, I don't have, and I want to buy it on Amazon. And they are Davidson's, Frontier, and Starwest Botanicals. Those three companies, anything you're buying, if they have it, you can get it from them, and you know it's going to be quality. When it comes to the chamomile on the price and availability, Frontier out of the three is where I go. In the write-up today, I give you a bunch of stuff that you can do with chamomile, including things that it will do to help you if you're a beekeeper, I give you um, a two different teas that you can make with it beyond just making it as a straight tea. And, of course, it is part of my infamous Three Flowers Blend for Three Flowers Blend Mead. Uh, so check it out. But remember, let's say you don't want this and you don't want anything I've reviewed. You can still shop through Tea Spaz, and as long as you start there, you help us no matter what you buy. Uh, that brings us to our song of the day today. And I'm going to tell you, it goes really good with the second to the last call uh, about getting older. This is by the Zach Brown Band, and it's called Quiet Your Mind. And I think we could all do with a little bit of quieting our minds. That's why I say every once in a while, take a media fast. Don't watch the news. Don't go to Facebook. At least just take a day off. Trust me, if anything really important happens, somebody will tell you. You won't be able to get away from it. Um, so we'd all do with quieting our mind. But this song is in particular about quieting your mind with concerns about getting older. It's a race you can't win is one of the lines in the song. I, I always find it interesting when you know you talk to people about things like insur life insurance, and they say, well, if I die. I always correct them. I say, no, when you die. Because you're going to die. We all will die. Every single one of us is going to die. I know it sucks to think about, but we are. But there's a piece in that. When you really accept it, like this is part of the natural way of things. And that means that we really do need to do the most we can with our dash. But like everything I teach, we should do that because of the opportunity it represents to us, not out of fear. Fear, I try to put you in touch with it a little bit when I say don't waste it. That's just to wake you up. Once you're woken to the, the concept of, 
hey, I need to do something with this limited time I have on this planet, then you should see the opportunity in it. And you should come at it with, with a sense of abundance thinking. To how much can I do with what I have? But one way to be effective is to learn to quiet the mind and not worry so much. Because as I've also said before, so much of the things that people worry about are things they have no control over. There's no point in worrying over things that you have no control over. Focus on the things that you can do to mitigate certain things. But in the end, like if you're worried about something you can't control, it's a waste. Worry about the, the actions you can take to mitigate it. But the bigger thing is, most things people worry about, not only are they things they don't control, but they're things that don't actually affect their lives. It doesn't actually pertain to you. You think it does. You've convinced yourself of it. Take a break. Quiet the mind. And I just want to say one thing about this band in particular. I love the Zac Brown band. They have some of the best music being made in country music today. Just the harmonizing that this group does alone is awesome. There's a song they do called Sweet Annie. If you've never heard it, look it up. The harmonies, and whether you like the song words or not, man, the harmonies in that song are just killer. You know, the song has some great harmonies, too, in it. Uh, but they're just good dudes, man. These are guys that, when they do concerts, they cook for their fans. Like, I don't mean they cater. I mean, they, go, they have, like, a trailer and tents and stuff, and they have a certain number of fans selected at every concert, and the band themselves goes out and cooks for their fans, hangs out with them, drinks a beer, feeds them. Just, you know, people talk about country music, music uh, musicians being salt of the earth. A lot of them are fake-ass bullshit phonies. Zach Brown is the real deal, man, and so is the entire band. So here you go today. Let's uh, end today on a positive note. Quiet your mind, accept your mortality, but make the most of it. It's gone for you know it now. Quiet your mind. Soak it all in. It's a game you can't win. Enjoy the Feel the change going on all around me. It's strange how I'm taken and guided where I end up right where I'm needed to be. Quiet your, quiet your, quiet, quiet your mind. So get up. It's a game you can't win. Enjoy the ride. 
talk and you're not busy listening Hear what the land has to say Perfect day, wishing I wouldn't get any older. They say that it's gone for you, know it now. Soak it all in, it's a game you can't win. Enjoy the ride.